0: listening to Lore and Legend with Rick Scott. Lore and Legend brings you myths, legends, and fables from world folklore and mythology. We tell stories the way that they're meant to be told, in the style of traditional storytelling and enriched with traditional music and dramatic audio work. This series of Lore and Legend is called The Gates of Dream, exploring tales of encounters between the heroes and heroines of Greek myth, gods and spirits of the Greek underworld, the lands of dream, death and darkest fate. This episode of Lore and Legend comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers, StoryFolk Christy Carson, Paul Jackson, Sean Powell and Shawnee Baskett. Thanks to all of you for your generosity and your enthusiasm for our stories. Please consider joining our StoryFolk in supporting the podcast by becoming a Patron, for more details, visit our website and click Support Us. In this, our sixth episode, we hear the stories of not one but four kings and how the gods' punishment of their sins are revealed to them by their dreams. From storyteller Rick Scott and featuring the music of Michael Levy, Saquilo, and Caleb Hennessy, this is The Dreams of Kings. When the aged king finally returned home, to his island kingdom of Ithaca, he intended to live out the rest of his days in peace and sleek old age until death came to claim him, because the age of heroes was coming to an end. And so, with his band of brothers, loyal men, fellow sailors, he established a court of song, of dance, of merrymaking and story, And in that court, men gathered to drink wine, play tunes upon the lyre, and tell stories. The king, he told the best stories of all. Stories of travels wide and far, of battles, games, of tricks and stratagems. and The people loved to hear his stories. And there was one story that the aged king liked to tell the best. It was the story of a sailor who one day forswore the sea, and he laid his oar across his broad shoulders, and he began to walk. He walked until he could not see the ocean, until there was only land on every horizon. And he walked until he came to a place where the people looked at him strangely, until at last one of them asked, Why do you carry that winnowing fan upon your shoulder? And there on that spot the old sailor planted his oar in the ground and gave thanks to the gods and declared that he would make his home there and never again return to the sea. And yet, that aged king, when his cup was drunk dry and the lyre string had stilled and the stories had died with the light in the hearth and he slept in his shadowy chamber, well then, He was visited in his sleep by shuddering dreams. Dreams upon dreams. Some of joy and some of terror, but they followed one upon the other in quick succession so as to make his spirits tremble. He dreamed of islands, islands riddled with deep and burrowing caves where giants and shadows dwelt. Islands surrounded by rocks and whirlpools that dash boats and men to their deaths. Islands in the mists and fog where ghostly voices called. He dreaded to hear them, and yet they called. And in the fog which fell about him, there were no other voices to guide him. All these dreams he dreamed at night. And in the day, they clung to him like the gossamer threads of the spider's web. So that the king became more and more distant and haunted. Such that even when he told a story, his words, they would begin to wander. His eyes would glaze and it was clear that he fought on some other scene which was clearer to his vision. Until one day watching all this with growing frustration. The regent prince, that aged king's own son, rose from his place in the circle of the court and he slammed down his own scepter on the hall's bright tiles. Father, he cried, no more old men's stories. Our vaults, they grow no fuller with gold, with rich clothes or fine weapons. We need new songs to sing and new stories to tell. You regale us with past glories. Sing songs of dead and decrepit heroes when you should arm our youths to ennoble themselves. We should equip ships and grant audiences to foreign envoys. I will captain a new fleet and win us the fame and the fortune that gods require from men to prove the creed of heroes is not dead, but deepen the deeds of our blood." make new conquests, found new cities, write new legends in the stars. But these words, they displeased the aged king, whose looks were sour and curdled like milk. My son, my prince, he scoffed, what brings this on? Are our coffers not full enough? Are your clothes not fine? Is the wine not good? Haven't I provided you of all? Do you not have all that you desire, even a wife most honourable, wise and beautiful? But at this the prince only shaded his eyes and laughed bitterly. Oh, yes, yes, my beautiful wife, who one night was visited in her bed by a dream of Athena, who told her to go to her father and demand her virgin white cloth to hasten down to the beach there to meet... You, a stepfather, and who nursed you in the bosom of a heart there in Phoenicia until you were ready to come home to my mother? And the prince looked up at his father then, his eyes burning. Do you think that we do not see you? Looking away to the sea, over the horizon, dreaming of some place other than here. I have seen that look before. It was that same look you wore when, the night after you first returned to our hall, you rose in the morning and told my mother, your queen, that the gods were calling you away again. That Poseidon demanded you place your oar over your shoulder and walk until you reached a place where there were none who knew to see, and there make holy sacrifice to appease him. And so away you went, father, leaving your queen and your son once again to hold your kingdom. But what you do not say when you tell that story is how you forgot us there in that foreign land, tried to make yourself a lord of the inland instead of the sea, seduced and married that queen, Kalidaiki, tried to win her war for her, but failed fail to save her or her sons until the gods intervened. And when at last you returned once again here to our shores, to our island without your oar, by then my mother she was gone, away to Mantinea in deepest Arcadia, where she is the lover of radiant Hermes, and mother to a god, to horn-strong, hairy pan, So the Arcadians say, and they do pay her reverence and even worship. And she left me here on Ithaca as regent, as heir. But you brought your hundred men and warriors back and you repossessed this court. So now it is split between us, the islanders, and you who have made of this island a long bacchanal for old and sleek sailors in their twilight years. The prince and the prince swept out his arms to take in all the court and then turned back toward his father. That, that is the story that you do not tell. How you returned but couldn't stay home, how you lost your queen and forgot your kingdom. Of course, there was always destiny to blame. The prince gestured up towards the sky as he said this. And yet, still still as you look once again to the past, while our real power fades. What of today, father? What of all these men, our island youth and blood? Not so young now, since you have returned and long set yourself to restraining their ambition. Now in days gone by, men have called you the best of the Greeks. Your legend is already established, father. But ours, it has never begun. What of our travels, our conquests, our glories? Here am I, the king's own son, Stuck, herding goats, Netting fish, picking olives. What will be left to me when your time is finally over? Will I be heir to a kingdom of rocks? A warlord to fishmongers? His voice rose, and the prince lashed out with his scepter. Will I be a prince of goats? (laughs) A tripod crashed to the floor. Silence. The king saw his son's fury, which never before had he seen fully. And for a moment, the king's face and his lips were set as still as stone. When at last he spoke, he said, So you think me a tyrant, Telemachus? The prince, he breathed hard and he answered, I think I want to live somewhere other than in your story. But that is all they are, son stories. And if you had listened to the stories that I told you of Troy, of Poseidon's wrath against me, and you're still dreaming now of glory. You have not really been listening, because those were not dreams. They were nightmares. Here, I have told you this story before, but it is clear I must tell it again. Remember the story of King Aphon. King Aphon who, through his hunger and his lust for glory, committed sacrilege against the gods. He did not care about the price of his fame. He wanted to build the greatest palace that the world had ever seen. But a grove of oak trees, sacred to Demeter, the green and grain-giving goddess, stood in the way. And so he led a column of woodsmen out to where he would lay the new foundations. And under his unflinching gaze, they began to fell away. And at the heart of the grove there stood an ancient oak, great of girth. Its wreath was golden, its thick boughs were hung with a thousand flowers. For the thousand mortal prayers that she every day answered, here, the brazen work of the woodcutters faltered. But seeing them shrink back in holy fear, Aphon mocked the woodsman, and he croaked If this be the tree that Demeter loves, if this be the very home of the goddess herself, still I'll see her green tresses spread on the ground. And so he wielded the axe himself. And forward with the first blow, and he split the great oak's wizened skin so that a tear of blood ran down the head. A cry went up from the gathered men, and one pitched forward to pull the king back from his next swing, but Aphon snarled and twisted his grip, and with a flick of his arm, he hacked off his hireling's head at the neck. Then he was back to it. With blow after blow, he severed branch, trunk, and root. He laid apart the tree to its heart, smeared the grass about with crimson streaks of sap. And from the ravaged core, the tree's dryad groaned. I curse you, you who murders me. I prophesy your death. I spell your doom. But afar, we continued to hack and to hew, and the men hauled down in the tree with strong ropes until the trunk split and fell, and crushed all of the trees that clustered around it. The tree's mother, Demeter, felt the shudders and groans. She was grasping tightly to the earth sunk roots as the tree died. And the goddess wiped the singeing tears from under her eyes. And she spelled that king's fate. She summoned and sent forth one of her oreads, out riding her own chariot that was drawn by dragons out to the furthest bounds of Scythia, where lies a freezing land of gloom, of barren soil, naked of any crop or tree. There lived the three wretched spirits that they call cold, fever and hunger. Yes, there on the granite peak of Caucasus, that was where Limos, whose name means hunger, lived. Scrabbling about the stony fields with tooth and nail for withered weeds, a hollow creature, her bones and bowels stretching her paper skin, her lips white crusts, her hair coarse straw, her knees and ankles swollen like balls. And now fate decreed that Demeter could never meet with hunger face to face. And so it was through the voice of that timid and frightened Oread that she made her demands, asked that hunger climb into the belly of that wretched king and let nothing ever drive her out. And so as the king slept, hunger drifted down the wind and through the window of his palace, climbed upon his bed, wrapped her claw-like arms around his chest, and placing her white lips against his own, filled his mouth and throat and lungs with her herself, his hollow veins with empty craving. And then, as quickly as she had come, she cast herself back into the wind and fled from the fertile earth, to a distant, bleak and mountain home, that pit of dearth and want. Aphon still slumbered beneath the wings of gentle sleep. And in his sleep, he dreamed of food and of feasting and he chewed at invisible morsels, ground down on ghostly sustenance with his teeth, stuffed his throat with imaginary food, grabbing handfuls of the empty air. But when he woke, the king was ravenously hungry, and he called at once for food. He finished one, and then he called for another. And he dined on red meat, on bird flesh, on the fishes of the sea, but nothing could calm his craving. And as the sea swallows the never-ending water of all the earth's rivers, or as fire will consume every log that is added to it, so the feasting could not satiate, but only stoke Aphon's hunger. And he ate mountains of food, enough to satisfy cities or realms. He spent all his wealth, he sold his own daughter, into slavery to pay for more. And yet still, when he had consumed every scrap of food in his kingdom, and his own starving people could bring him no more, then the king began to gnaw upon his own hands, and with anguish screamed both of pain and of pain, Rattling hunger, one bite after bloody bite, to consume all of his own flesh. Until his rabid spirit descended to Hades, where now he sits in that same pool as the Titan Tantalus where the waters shrink back before your lips and the drooping ripe fig branches curl away from your fingertips. That king's real name was Eresikphon. It means he who tears up the earth. But we always call him Aphon, which means blazing because of his hunger, which was ever burning. And so think, think, my son, of Aphon and his hunger for glory. When the king had finished his story, the court broke and all went their separate ways. And so think, think, my son, of Aphon and his hunger for glory. And think, too, of that young girl, whom I have heard that you loved. But when I gave to you the rope and we hung the nine maidens in the courtyard, you did not raise your voice to stop me, but I soaked us both in the blood of our folk and our kin. That, that was the price of glory. When the king had finished his story, the court broke and all went their separate ways. It was true the prince was not appeased, but Telemachus and his wife Nausicaa went with a dark cloud hanging over them, and indeed all the men who secretly agreed with him. Things continued then, much as they had before, and the king made an effort at least to appear at ease, He would not consent to surrender the peace and the content that he had fashioned for himself and for his kingdom. What arrogance and heartbreak it was, he fought, for his son to threaten all of that. And so he prayed and he sacrificed and he honored the gods at court and in festival and the land's fortunes remained rich. But at night, he continued to dream. Until one night, the king dreamed that he stood upon the shore of the sea. And with his eyes, he saw a man all of golden, shimmering light coming up towards him from out of the sea. that man, whose body was the very body of perfection, whose beautiful face was the most beautiful, whose limbs were so well formed that he moved with the grace of the gods, and the light in his eyes was such that it was painful to meet his gaze. Well, wow. every fibre of the aged king's being burned to enfold him in his arms and press the length of his body against his. And he reached out with his hands to encircle, But when he did, the golden man spoke in a voice that resounded in the aged king's ears and chest. This meeting is not gladness but grief, for of the two of us, one of us shall utterly destroy the other. And then from the depths of the ocean behind the figure, a fiery dart suddenly burst up from the crest of a wave, and leapt across the space as if to sweep through the aged king's chest. And with a start, the king of Ithaca awoke gasping for breath. He was lying in the bough of his bed, carved from the still flowering olive tree, around which the foundations of his whole house was built. But his queen was not there by his side he was alone. The king fought on his dream, which greatly troubled his heart, but he could find no meaning in it. And though he prayed to the grey-eyed goddess, to his grief he found that she was silent. And he called for the wise men who judged the meaning of dreams. And they stood around the king's bed while he told them what he had seen in his vision of the night. My Lord Odysseus, they said, once they had conversed amongst themselves. Dreams are unclear and troubling things, and their meaning is by no means certain. As it is told, There was once a great king who called together all the armies of his people and explained his desire to make war upon his neighbours. But his chief advisor counselled so violently against this war that the king grew angry and sent him away. But once night fell, the words of his advisor tormented the king. Until he was so filled with doubt, he resolved that they would not go to war. This settled, he was finally able to sleep. But as he slept, he thought that a figure, who was tall and comely of shape, came to stand nearby him. And the figure commanded him, The road you plan to take in the day, by that way should you go. The next day dawned, and the king told no one of this dream but instead he told the assembled leaders that he had reconsidered the words of his counsellor and found them wise. And as it was, the people and their generals were greatly relieved by the king's decision because they truly did not want to go to war. But when the night came again, that same comely figure came and stood by the king as he lay asleep. You ignore my commands, said the figure as if it were spoken by a nobody. But be sure of this. Retreat from this war, and as quickly as you have risen in this world, you shall fall. And at those words, the king started from his bed, sweat streaming down over his forehead, his heart beating in his chest. He did not know what to do, for on the one hand, he could not stop thinking about the counselor's warnings which seemed so clear and true, and on the other, this dream, which had come twice to him now, also clear and distinct. And so he called for that selfsame advisor, who was cried up out of his bed, and the king explained to him his dilemma. And the advisor told him that what he saw was not from God. The dreams, he said, that hover over us in the night, they're just afterthoughts, which run upon the heels of things that we have been thinking about in the day. In these past days, all that the king had thought about was war with his rivals in the neighbouring lands. Well, that may be so, the king said, and yet I must know one way or the other, and so this is what I have decided we should do. First you will put on my royal garment, and then you will sit on my royal throne, and after that you shall lay down to sleep in my bed. And if this truly is a dream sent from God to the king, and not purely from my own thoughts, then it will come to you as you sit on my throne and sleep in my bed, and give you the same instruction as it gave to me. The advisor protested, but eventually agreed that if this was what the king desired, then he would obey. And so the king and his counsellor stripped off and exchanged their clothes. And the advisor wrapped himself in the robes of power and the vestments of glory. And he sat himself down upon the royal throne. And then after a while, he took himself off to the royal bed and he lay his head upon the royal pillow. And eventually he fell down. Into sleep while he slept to his great shock the same comely figure that had appeared to the king came to stand by the counselor and spoke to him with a voice that crashed like thunderous splitting rocks sir you are the one who pulls the king from his destiny Try to pull him from his path again, and I promise you that you will know great anguish. And as it said these words, the figure seemed to reach out towards him with hands that burned as hot as burning irons. And so the advisor leapt up straight from the king's bed in abject terror. And on that instant, he was forced to admit to the king that he had been wrong that his dreams and his war, they were decrees from the gods. The king's magicians were all brought in then to interpret the rest of his dreams. And they said that a dream of a great snake portended his dominion over all the nations of the earth. And so the king strode across the earth on the back of his army. And when the advisor saw the king's legions spread out below the hill where the king had set his throne, his advisor wept, for he saw that in the eyes of the king, each of those men was only a straw of kindle to be thrown upon the fire. And when the seas held him back, the king had the water whipped for defying him. And when he burned the temples and the granaries of the other nations, then the gods turned their backs on him and they handed the victory to his enemies. And so the wise men said to Odysseus, Veritas, my Lord, there are false dreams and true dreams. But every dream must have its interpretation from men who are skilled in the wisdom of Zeus. And our judgment of your dream is this. It is an evil dream that speaks destruction. Look to your son, the prince, for the dream signifies that a son or father shall slay the other. Take heed and see if he stores up designs against you of any plans he may have to ambush you. And take your life." The king heard the words of these men, and on the instant he was wroth, and he banished them from his house. How could they speak so against his son, Telemachus, who had searched across the wide ocean for him when he did not return from the war of Troy? His son, who when he did return had greeted him with joyous open arms, who wielded weapons beside him as he laid low the enemies who had looted his kingdom. It was true, he and his son were at odds, but for discontent to turn to hate, to suppose such wickedness or unkindness could brood in the heart of one like Telemachus. But though he banished the dream seers, from that time forward Odysseus could find no peace. He separated himself, And he prayed and sacrificed, and he sought the counsel of wise Athena. But the grey eyed goddess remained silent, as she had all the days since he had returned to his home and to his bed. And the aged king's gloom and wrath deepened. And then one day, as they were in the great hall and the minstrels were singing their songs, there were news of pirates on the sea, and much discourse amongst the assembly about who should fight them and who the king would send to fight them. Everyone knew that Telemachus wanted to fight the pirates himself, but although he looked as storm-crossed as he ever did, to the surprise of all, he said nothing. Instead, he waited until the councils were over, and the aged king had led the court on into the next round of music and stories and song before the feast. Then Telemachus did step forward. And he declared, I have a story to tell. And without waiting for invitation, he began to speak it. Once there was a king who was the most wretched man on earth. There was no man smaller, no man poorer, no man unhappier than he appeared at that moment. He was held in iron chains before his captor, a rival king who had defeated his army, enslaved his people and destroyed his empire. Now this man had said once that he was a descendant of Heracles, So his conqueror declared that he should be put onto a pyre and burned to see if the gods saved him from this fate in the same way they had done that hero. And so the poor king was thrown onto the bonfire and it was lit. And as the flames climbed up the pyre towards him, the poor king looked up to the heavens and three times over he wailed. The sage spoke the truth. The sage spoke the truth the sage spoke the truth. While well, the conquering king was intrigued by this outcry, and quickly he asked his advisers, what is the meaning of these words? And the advisers, who were well versed in the law of the lands that they had conquered, said to him, Sire, the story goes that once this king was rich, wealthy, and powerful above all measure, And he was accounted the greatest of kings, as well you know. He used to say, there was no man greater, no man mightier, no man happier than me. But the richest man in this world was visited once by the wisest man. And showing him his riches, his might, and his power, the king asked this sage, have you seen any man greater? any man mightier, any man happier than I. But the sage shook his head, and he told him, I have seen no man smaller, no man poorer, no man unhappier than you, my king. For a man may live a thousand days, but it takes only one to raise him up or to throw him down. Nothing that you have belongs to you, but it comes from the gods, and in a moment, they can take it all away from you. Well, this answer, it did not please the king at all. And he banished the sage from his kingdom. But soon after the wise man had gone away, to the king there came a dream in the night. And in this dream, the king saw his own son, the prince, struck through the heart with a vicious iron point. He woke up greatly alarmed and afraid, for what if this was a true dream that showed him the future? He resolved at once he would do everything in his power to keep his son from meeting such a fate. First, he had every weapon and pointed implement taken down from the walls in the men's room and in the barracks and piled them all up in the women's quarters where none of the men ever went. Then he banned all weapons and sharp implements from the palace in its entirety. And soon he had guards seizing anything made from iron at the city's gates. And he decreed that only bronze could be used inside the walls. Everything that was made of iron he had piled up and then cast into a forge and melted down. While all of this was going on, he decided the best thing to distract his son from thoughts of war and adventure would be for him to find a wife. And so he arranged a courtship and a marriage for his son. And while the prince was preoccupied with all this, he quietly gave all of the prince's fighting responsibilities to other men in the kingdom. He even found a bodyguard for his son, a loyal man who followed him everywhere, who stood guard at every door and who would gladly throw himself in front of any iron point that threatened the prince. But after the wedding, when the prince had been married almost a year, he was passing through the palace grounds and he saw a band of soldiers girding themselves for battle. And so he asked his bodyguard who were these young men and what was their mission. And the bodyguard answered that a beast in the shape of a mighty and monstrous bull had appeared from the mountains and was laying waste to the country and cornfields. They had organised hunting parties before, but always they were bested by the monstrous boar, which watered the ground with their blood. And as soon as he heard this, the prince went at once to see the king. Father, he said, why haven't you asked me to lead the men in this fight against the monstrous boar? Do you think that I'm cowardly or lazy? What kind of man will my young bride think that I am? Either let me go to chase this monstrous boar myself, or give me some good reason why you have been keeping me here at home. But I had a dream in the night, which warned me you were doomed to die young if you were ever pierced by an iron weapon, and this is why I no longer send you out with the fighting men. Besides, now you are newly married, a man of the city, you have many royal duties, Let somebody else lead the hunting parties. You need not tempt fate by fighting with the men. When the prince heard this, he considered, and then he said, Oh, father, I don't blame you for what you've done. What a terrible omen. But the dream, you said it yourself, it foretold I should die stricken by an iron point. But don't you see a boar has no hands to lift an iron weapon? If the dream had said that I should die pierced by a tusk, well, then you would have been right to keep me away. But since no boar can wield iron, I I beg you, therefore, let me join the hunting party. Let me go with the men. Well, to this, the king could find no logical objection. You have the better of me there, my son. Your interpretation, it's sharper than mine. And so I suppose I must consent to let you go. And so the king allowed the prince to depart with the hunting party, but he made sure that the prince's bodyguard went with him. And they found the beast high in the mountains, gorged on the blood of their country folk. And the hunters surrounded him, hemming him in with spear and blade. And the great boar snorted and roared, curling itself into a mass of quivering muscle and bristling spines. They surrounded from every side. And the boar turns and circles, snaps its boggling eyes towards every man whose weapon flinches in the hand. And then the prince's bodyguard, he sees an opening. There's a moment, the breadth of a heartbeat, as he steps forward and he flings his spear. It flies through the air, but the great boar flinches aside. The iron point flies clear through the space between eye and tusk. And it buries itself not in the hide, but in flesh. Not in the flank of the boar, but into the chest. The chest of the prince. The iron point pierced from breast to back through the muscle of his heart. His life left through his lips before he even hit the ground. And the bodyguard cried out in horror, in anguish, and ran to cradle the prince in his arms but there was nothing that could be done. The prophecy had come true. The dream had become reality. And when the conquering king had heard the tale, he turned and he looked towards the poor king and there were tears of pity and understanding in his eyes. At once he ordered the flames of the pyre be extinguished, and the poor king fetched down and unchained. He had the man washed, cleaned, brought before him. You and I, we are the same, he said. The gods have brought you low, but I will have mercy on you. From this day forward, you will become one of my trusted advisors. You will become my saint. And so you can see, said Telemachus, as he finished his tale. And as he spoke, he looked straight at his father. You can see by this story, it's useless to hold back a person from their fate, whether it be good or evil. If a man is wise, he may be humble and live to be a sage. But if he denies the laws of fate, the only possible outcome of that is blood or the bonfire. And Odysseus, whose ire had been growing all through the tale that his son told, flew finally then into a rage. You would have me listen to the gods and to what they say about fate? Well then, so be it. For all the love that I bear to you in my heart, I can see that you, Telemachus, answer it with violent thoughts. And so from this moment henceforth, you are banished, you will go to Cephalonia, and you will work the land there to earn your patrimony and your fate, and any evil that you intend to me and to my throne will be frustrated. At once the court about them exploded in anger and outrage and chaos, but the king's words were carried. His power was uncontested, and his rule was law in that place? This episode of Law and Legend tells not one four different myths and legends about the dreams of kings. It begins a multi-episode arc for the remainder of this series. The framing narrative of Odysseus as the aged king, living at the end of the age of heroes, is based upon lost epics which told the closing chapters of his story. But since these works are lost, we have only outlines of the tales of other classical authors and scholars and we must provide our own details and interpretations of its key incidents. And so, as Odysseus contemplates his life and a newly complicated relationship with his son in our episode, he confronts the legacy of his own ruthless and bloody actions at Troy, his return home to Ithaca, and, as those other epics relate, his decision to leave home again in pursuit of further adventures. This plays out in dialogue with other tales of kings and their hubris, and the role that supernatural power and the role that the supernatural power of dreams played in their punishment and downfall. The story of Eresikphon, or King Aphon, as he was sometimes called, sees this tyrant king, caught between the opposing forces of fertility and abundance represented by Demeter, goddess of crops and vegetation, and the dark and destructive force of Limos, primordial spirit of hunger, born from night. The laws of nature said that these two spirits could never meet, and this was true except in the context of dreams, where Aphon was tormented by the illusion of abundance, but cursed with insatiable hunger a curse which spilled out of his dreams and into his waking life. In the full story, King Aphon also had a daughter, and that daughter just happened to be Odysseus's grandmother, who had the power of shapeshifting. And if you want to hear more about that, then check out our Halloween specials coming up next week. In later moral literature, Aphon was often used as a symbol for material desires and lusts which could never be satisfied, and the moral degeneracy that resulted from giving in to those lusts. The story of the king and his counsellor, the king, the the story of the king and his counsellor, and the king who dreamed of his son's death, have both been adapted from the writings of the Greek historian Herodotus. Since these legends were set many years after the time of Odysseus and the Odyssey, they've been adapted to resemble a type of ancient Greek folktale which might have become attached to later figures. But these stories were in fact about very specific figures in Herodotus' history. The story of the king and his advisor swapping clothes was told of the Persian king Xerxes and his royal advisor and uncle Artanabus. The kingdom which he sought to attack and conquer was Greece itself, and resulted in the Second Greco-Persian War. Although Xerxes initially won many victories in Greece, he was eventually forced to retreat. The stories of his review of his army on the hill and his whipping of the sea for defying him are also parts of the legend that were recorded by Herodotus. The king who accounted himself the happiest man alive was King Croesus, of the Kingdom of Lydia in modern-day Anatolia. The wise man who chastised him was Solon, an Athenian statesman who is remembered as one of the Seven Sages of Greece. Croesus's family was responsible for introducing coinage into Greek society, and Croesus himself is said to have issued the first gold coins of a standardised purity leading to his association with great wealth, epitomised in the phrase as rich as King Croesus. Croesus traced his ancestry back to the Greek race and to the Greek gods through the family of Heracles. According to Herodotus, as well as losing his son Attis to the fate prophesied by a dream, Croesus went on to consult the oracle of Delphi, which infamously told him that if he went to war a great empire would form. Croesus initiated a preemptive war against the encroaching Persian Empire, and he lost. The fallen empire that the oracle spoke of was in fact his own. His captor, King Kairos, ordered him to be burned on a pyre. He was said to be curious to see if Croesus's Greek gods would save him from this fate which resembled that of Heracles. On the pyre, Croesus was heard to wail Solon's name three times. This intrigued Cyrus, who asked the meaning of the word and was told the story of Croesus's confrontation with Solon. This sparked the empathy of Kairos, who recognised himself in the story. He was said to have spared Croesus and allowed him to become one of his own royal advisers. But historians debate whether Croesus truly survived. In fact, he may have been executed or committed suicide. Continuing a theme seen in the Penelope episode, these stories about dreams and dreamers have been incorporated into the Odysseus family dynamic of sharing dream stories to make a point or to achieve an end. Here, Odysseus is at loggerheads with his son Telemachus, though he considers his dream and its interpretation that Telemachus will try to kill him almost unbelievable The interplay of these dream stories illustrates a conflict between an older and wiser Odysseus, who is ambivalent about his own legend, and his son Telemachus, who himself has come to adulthood and is grappling with the shadow of his father's legend. So story folk, we are left asking, will the prophecy come true? Could Telemachus, the loyal son of the Odyssey, really turn so profoundly against his father? Make sure that you keep tuning in to find out. Next time on Lore and Legend, it's our Halloween special. Listen to parts one, two, and three of the Lore and Legend Halloween special 2020. The story today was interpreted and performed by Rick Scott. This episode featured music by Michael Levy, Sekilo, and Caleb Hennessy. Additional sounds and music were sourced from the community at freesound.org and full audio credits are available on our website at www.loreandlegend.co.uk. You can go there for news about our upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore. If you like what you hear and you want to keep on hearing more, then please consider supporting the podcast through our creators page on Patreon. Thank you once again for listening, story folk, and I hope that you're staying safe out there.